so, welcome to... Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Oh, that's weird, isn't it? We always used to... Robin and whoever... Josie's yeah, Book Shambles, I'm only kidding. A little bit arrogant. comedians and broadcasters, Josie Long and Robin Ince, and the writer, advocate and broadcaster, Nicka Shukla. Hello. Hi. Don't expect level I could of professionalism. Do an then, just so you know, was... you had you had a look as if going. This might be like a real show. No. Oh no 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 no! I could no, do no. advocate then because I was thinking about the work you do with Rife Magazine and about how much you kind of do work empowering young people. I th- I thought it was because you knew I scraped a two two in law. <laughs> <laughs> devil's advocate. The devil's advocate. The jurisprudential advocate. I don't even know that's a thing. I did really scrape a two two in in law. Was that because of your uh, your rap work at the time, which of course you've written about in a fictionalised version in your? Yeah, that was your first novel, wasn't it? Yeah, Coconut Limited was pretty much about how I thought I was going to be a world famous rapper by the time I did my law degree, <laughs> and then I would never be sh- uh, never be hard done by any contract. But- um, but also be an amazing rapper. Be on both sides. I'd be on like, both sides. Give, give us the record company contract. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just give my. Fine. I'll just give my. Give it to my people and then give it to myself. Like put it in a briefcase and then, I don't know. I used to have a briefcase as well. Did you? Yeah. I was. I was. I was the. I was the most mediocre rapper, in the world, between the ages of sixteen and twenty-eight. When I thought enough. Enough's enough. You you're can't much older than that now. How old are you now then? I'm 36. Oh, right. I thought you were younger than that. You told me about what we were doing one with a young person. <laughs> you're all older. Even the young people I know now are old. I, mean, I apologise. Obviously. But, so that, what was it that made you, well, before we get onto the books, but I mean, I suppose you could say, like, well, someone whose work I think is fantastic when it's published, his poetry when it's published, but also you, of course, performed a lot of it, is Gil Scott Heron. Yeah. So was someone like him, was was he when you were sitting, or was that that you wouldn't have known about him yet what was the kind of public enemy stuff or yeah so when I was like nine or ten my cousin uh, and it's actually like I I recreate the scene in the book because it was such a a mind exploding thing my cousin put on this this tape called rap tracks and the first song on it was don't believe the hype and it you know you kind of hear that don't 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 believe the hype (laughs) don't (laughs) and then you hear chuck d come in and you go it's back god you're looking for the same thing it's a new thing check out this and bring it and i was just like what the fuck are they talking (laughs) about this is amazing and it really blew my mind and um yeah and i just became really obsessed with rap and you know i so it took me to to um channel channel 4 at 1am used to show a lot of rap um, they, I, I can't remember what it was, but they'd have like a five-minute segment, and they'd show a rap video, and that would be the thing that I would just tape and obsess over. Um, and when Tim Westwood was actually good, um, when he was on the, he was on Kiss, he used to have an amazing rap show, and I would obsess about that. And then I had a really problematic relationship with gangster rap for a large part of my teens because I needed heroes, and as Chuck D said, none of them were on any stamps. That's because that was. Uh, I was thinking NWA have been a, a version of NWA has been touring, hasn't it? Yeah, reasonably. And uh, a friend of mine was saying that he went to Brixton Academy to see them, and then he went to see Nick Cave. So this must have been over a year ago, I suppose. And he said, "What was on the same said, lineup?" <laughs> no, they, they were like two days apart. He said, NWA was amazing. There was no one at the bar. Everyone was bouncing on and off stage. Everyone looked kind of fit and well. 
He said, and then he went to the Nick Cave gig and there was a huge queue for the bar. <laughs> everyone was in a big black overcoat and everyone looked tired and drunk. And I just love that bit where you see the... Like when I saw Public Enemy at Glastonbury, where it wasn't that much of... A, I mean, I think it was just Chuck D because I think that... Uh, who else would have been... Yeah, Flavor Flavor wasn't allowed in. He'd, yeah. he'd done something which didn't allow him in. But it was still a, an incredible thing to watch. Yeah, and, I, I saw And them. you go, this is 25... It's like punk's 40 years old. And, you know, Public Enemy, that they're near, it must be 30 now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I saw them a couple of years ago for the first time ever, and they were amazing. Flavor Flavors there. They had the S1Ws. It was, it, and they'd still, they had more energy than I had. Wow. And it was, it was the best show. And what was weird about it was they were doing this greatest hits um, set, and me and my friend were going crazy, and, like, people around us were jumping up and down and people everyone else was sort of sedate but they were into it and then the, as the final song they played um the the song that they used in the paralympics uh, as the paralympics music and everyone went crazy and i thought this is weird like public enemy has had this um resurgence because of the, the paralympics and because of that da, 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 that that just that one like five second bit that like interstitial bit that happens on tv Whatever. Oh, it's so enough. much better than a big yeah. margarine advert, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably enemy for something spreadable straight from the fridge. I love them. I love them, and they're delicious as well. The uh, I can't they, believe, they were great when I, I can't talked believe to it. Not butter should have. Don't believe the hype. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't believe the dairy and the because uh, I, I went to see them because well one I wanted to go and see them and I thought oh the Rolling Stones were on. I was like I don't want to go and see that old man's band. I'll go and see <laughs> something really young. It's really 28 years old yeah, in yeah. terms of the... So, um, well, actually, quickly, before we get on with the interview, because mm. I always drag <coughs> loads of books to all these recordings. He we does. never get to mention So I'm going to just say the two things that I've read recently, which I think are fantastic. Have you read Confederacy of Dunces? Yeah, I was just looking at that book and going, I, I, I thought he famously only overwrote one book. Same here. Thank I you. Love That's that exactly book. what I thought. Yeah. The Neon Bible is his... He wrote this when he was about 16 years oh, old. God. In his... Uh, I love it. I think I, I'm a big fan of that kind of it in the same way as To Kill a Mockingbird, Capturing the Right. Those things which are a child or a teenager's that that bit that takes you into their narrative, their yeah. hopes and their kind of fears. And the Neon Bible is just this very beautiful, simply told tale of a little boy in a small town and about the relationships with his parents and his aunt. I think it was turned into uh, turned into a film by Terence Davis. Uh, distant voices still live such a, and it's just beautiful it's a very short book and again this was after Confederacy of Dunces had been a, a big success his mum had this book but she didn't Confederacy of Dunces for some reason the state John Kennedy was from you have to share the revenue with all of the family that are left mm. and I think his mum didn't like the fact that the rest of the family now they'd seen how successful Confederacy of Dunces was they would go brilliant there's this book and we'll make it. So she deliberately never had it published. Wow. And it was published after her death by the basically the guy who she had originally handed Confederacy Dunces to and just said, read it. And this guy says, you know, I kind of went, well, this woman seems really passionate about this book. So I will read it. And then, of course, he started reading it and going, how the hell was this rejected? This is a remarkable piece of work. And so he was then the guy who kind of was the executor for the Neon Bible. And it, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a brief novel, but I, th I thought it was, and it is just remarkable, 16 years old. It's, it's heartbreaking it's, to think of that. It's, it, mm. it, there's nothing sadder, I think, than somebody writing something marvellous and never getting any kind of But it's that bit that when they killed themselves, you go, was it, a moment 
would it have changed had they known or would it have changed if they just stayed for another half hour and their opinion would have changed of what they wanted to do I think anything over you know, the moment if we've got we talk a lot about kind of suicide on the show, but I think that is that's the horror of it isn't it but to have that creativity to have a sense of rejection and for, and in that moment Maker. I mean, Philip, the other book I was going to recommend is The Divine Madness of Philip K. Dick by Kyle Arnold, What's it, this? which is kind of basically the story of Philip K. Dick, but told with quite a kind of psychotherapist view because he lost, uh, he had a twin sister who uh, died when they were both babies from neglect. He kind of sometimes had that sensation that it should have been him that died. And he then also had this experience in 1974 where basically he had a, a, saw a pink light and it was this epiphany, this mystical epiphany. And this guy takes you through this. And a lot of people who've read about Philip K. Dick will know some of the stories but it's very interesting um but he talks about you know there was philip k dick was going to kill himself and he took no risks he uh he took loads of his heart medication 49 pills thinking that'll stop his heart and he then thought and then i'll cut my wrists and he cut them deeply enough and then he went into his car and he turned on the you know started the car and was going to also carbon monoxide but the car stalled the blood coagulated Mm. and he puked up all the pills and it seems very clear, certainly in the way Kyle Arnold writes about it, and I think in other things that Philip K. Dick, that for the moment that he survived, there was a relief. He went, right, now I'm going to create more stuff. Mm. But it's a very interesting... It's coming out from Oxford University Press. I think it's out in the next couple of weeks, but that's very, very interesting. So anyway, those are my recommendations. Neon Bible, which is fascinating, and, and, and is, another great book. Is that where the Arcade Fire got the name of their album from? I presume so, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Good link. I So now... As we move on to the proper interview in some way, shape or form, I know you. You are my friend. I and know you. You are my friend. Yes. This is a strange way to start a conversation. <laughs> Just a showing up. I wish Melvin Bragg did that one. <laughs> well, in our time, I'm joined by John Gray. You're my friend, aren't you, John Gray? And I'm your friend, Melvin. Good. I don't want to interview if you're not my friend. <laughs> the people Of all the people I know, I think you read more than anyone else that I know. I think you really do. Or... You're a very good liar about it. I'm. I am a very good liar about it. No, I do. I do. Read, I get through probably two books a week. Oh. But I, I, I've just decided not to read anything over three hundred and fifty pages. Yes, I hundred percent agree with that. Chest? Um, I tried many times and then gave up. And then because I've never f- finished any Foster Wallace, and then uh, a couple of years ago they they re- re-released a couple of his early works, and one of them, um, signifying rappers, was like he and a f- uh, friend at college had written this book about the significance of rap, and they were both sort of embarrassed about it. And I was given it to review for the Guardian, because um, uh, I am also one of the media elite secretly, and. Um, it, yeah, it, it was bad. It was bad, Foster Wallace. And I, like, I read it and I just thought, I can't really see like how he became Infinite Jess Man, which obviously I, I sort of tried and struggled to, to finish. And I think... Did he have bad opinions on rap as well? It just felt like a bunch of college guys going, hey, rap's great and poverty's like fun to rap about. Oh. And it. Do you think it might be something which was because I've just got a, a book of his which is basically an essay he wrote about free will with loads of padding to make sure it can be a book. Is this the tennis book? No. No, no, no it's just this is just a, like an essay he wrote refuting, I can't remember who it was, someone else's uh, philosophical point about free will. And as I looked at it, I've kind of got it and it may be one of those books that remains just on that shelf that's slightly mm. out of reach for the rest of my life. Whether that's my choice or, or not, we don't know because I haven't read the book so I don't know about free will. But I wonder if someone is basically just going, oh, look what I found. He wrote this when he was seven, and then you go put some essays around it. So the signifying rap thing was that actually published when he was alive? 
Yeah, it, yeah, it was. It came out in oh god, it came out in like at some point in the nineties, and then it was. I don't think it was then republished. It became sort of quite le- like whenever people talked about him, they would sort of talk about it and make make fun of it a little bit. And he was definitely embarrassed about it. And I think I think it's interesting, like thinking about the Neon Bible and like because of uh, like a lot of his work is being either republished or like the pale king was published and not quite completed um because that was a book he was writing when he died and i just sorry and, and like as a writer i do th- like it's really hard to go right that's it i'm sending the publish this now um because you're constantly like whenever whenever i read um do readings and i'm reading for my work i'm constantly editing i'm, con- yes. like, I'm still trying and i guess like 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 as stand-ups might you're you're constantly refining jokes and refining the timing or like tightening up punchlines or losing extra words like that's what i'm doing when i'm reading so i i it's kind of heartbreaking to read because you yeah every time you're making like slight improvements to it yeah that you know most people who buy the well everyone who buys the book is not gonna get the pleasure of yeah Yeah. and and i just don't know how i would feel about stuff because there's like there's two or three book length manuscripts in my um, or I'd say in my drawer, they're just in my um, in my on my hard drive. If my hard drive is a drawer um, that I've written, that I've, I'm glad I wrote them for the experience of writing them and for for the learning of the mechanics of storytelling. But if if I died very tragically on the way home today, and my wife decided to make loads of money by selling some, not not that she would, because you know I'm not really that well known, but it, I would be really pissed off if those books got published without. What if you don't die very tragically? You deny in a really banal manner. Would that change your opinion of your wife cashing in on your life and your work? Yeah, because I think at that point, like, why not? Mm. <laughs> I do, so I, I find that because like the, the Kafka, this you know the story that apparently wanted all his work destroyed. Though there's a kind of certain amount of debate about that. It's like the, that's why they always with Kafka they always show that picture of him going, oh look how deep and miserable he is. Never him on in his trunks on the beach smiling or anything like that because it's like you want to create this. There's a great book by James Hawes, the guy who wrote is he called Merc with Fins or I can't remember one of the and he's also a uh, Kafka and uh, kind of scholar and he tries to debunk loads of the myths about Kafka oh. about the fact that no one really thought he was great actually they did think he was really great and he was given prizes and he had a huge collection of pornography and you know which is now housed somewhere in oxford i think i've got that have i got the correct pass yes oh look at the doodles well that's i was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day because we were talking about how at oxford you can when you're a student there you can call up anything you want and what i used to really love doing was like looking at the 17th century equivalent of chat magazine and that sort of thing but philip larkin wrote a great deal of schoolgirl pornographic stories. What? Yeah, Philip Larkin wrote loads of dirty fiction, and my friend was it kind of Mallory Towers? Well, Mallory Towers, late night, late night, but um, (laughs) late night Larkin. (laughs) I have a friend who wrote an essay on just on that, and I I think it's nice in a way that you're allowed to be that indulged as a scholar that you're like, yes, I'm going to write about this. But he wrote loads of dirty stuff and it's all there archived as you please you can get the magazines you can read the like it was a bit of a, a side earner for him so it was actually published yeah magazines all oh, right yeah Sports i think i mean i'm ready to be proven wrong if i'm wrong but um uh so back to actually chatting with you um what... <laughs> hi josie i am your friend no but what i think the reason i started that like that was because of everyone I know personally, I know you read the most. And like, um, what what have you brought? What are you enjoying at the moment? 
Well, I, I, I was looking at books um, and I just thought I, I'm going to, because I, I think like the contemporary fiction is really good at the moment. There's some really amazing stuff out and I, I just thought I'd bring some of the books that are out currently that I've really enjoyed yes. recently. Um, so yeah, this one, this one just won the Man Booker International Prize and it's called The Vegetarian by Han Kang and oh, translated by... Oh, how good that the Man Booker Prize has been run by a short book. I might read it then. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, and it's translated by Deborah Smith and it's unbelievably good. It's one of the strangest books I've read in ages. Oh. And it's it is, you better say what the title is. The Vegetarian by Han Kang, translated by Deborah Smith. Um, cause obviously, yeah, cause uh, Deborah Smith's translation is excellent. Uh, it's, it's one of those books where like the, the language is really precise. It's, it's not flowery. It's about, it's about, um, a couple, uh, the the wife decides to become a vegetarian and um his life starts the husband's life starts to unravel completely um in lieu of this decision and she starts to go through this metamorphosis that just gets weirder and weirder and weirder until like this just um like uh, the, I, I i won't ruin it for you but it's just it is incredible and she she's uh she wrote another book called human acts which is all about state genocide and that is amazing as well but this this is just if you want a strange book that always would... oh it's got a quote from Emma mcbride have you read a girl is a half yeah, thing yeah we talked about this before it's an incredible book because because it won quite a few prizes and took a 10 years to actually get published and one of those prizes Amazon has this great thing where it's five star reviews or one star reviews because various different book groups have gone, This has won a prize. (laughs) 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 So, Ema McBride reckons a strange, painfully tender exploration of the brutality of desire indulged and the fatality of desire ignored. Exquisite. Also, I'm so glad, like, I'm sharing your, uh, I, I think I share your opinions about lengths of book. I love people who are able to be terse. Because I can't, and I approve, like, terseness. Get it said. That's why I think I like the existentialist and absurdist movement. They all did shortish books. I think I'll read The Outsider again, you know. They've had to put a special big font to make it. Mother died today. You don't need... Yeah. What happened this I'll tell you, I just draw a hat when she died. No, no, no. I tried her slippers on, the little slippers with the dragons on. And she, uh, cut that bit, Cannon. Well, what, <laughs> what, what, I think, what I think sort of happened in the, like the last 10 years is like there's this sort of franzoning of, of fiction <laughs> where like, like there's so, so much Western fiction, it seems to be about nostalgia mm. these days where like someone will walk into a room and they'll see a coffee cup. And then that coffee cup will then induce 50 pages of flashback with some like uh, abstract link to the coffee cup. And then they'll walk out of the room with their cup of coffee and have a shower. And then the way the water cascades down their back will remind them of another 50 pages of fucking flashback. Very Proustian, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's so boring. I I, I just, I can't can't be doing with it. Um, But nostalgia, that's interesting because... um, I was talking to somebody about film in the UK and and what still makes money in the UK and America uh, in terms of big films. And they said that basically it's superheroes or nostalgia. Yeah. And that's all that's happening. And there's something kind of... Obviously, culture is freaking out. The mainstream culture is freaking out in those places. But in other places in the world, they're not having that sort of experience <laughs> whatsoever. So what's going on is more interesting, more relevant, more forward-thinking, more interesting... Like, I've said interesting twice. Can I say, though, that if it's Tarkovsky's nostalgia, that's fine. That's a very good film. (laughs) More general. I I think that I saw someone the other day saying, you know, going, I want to go to the cinema, but I'm an adult. What do I go and see? (laughs) 
And I think that, you know, there are still some beautiful films. And Carol, I thought, was, was, was fantastic. Mustang. Um, Great film. Oh, I want to see Mustang, but I haven't seen it. It's so good. But I was worried What's because Mustang? it's... I don't know Mustang. It's, it's about Turkish sisters. Five Turkish sisters in quite a conservative family being married off one by one. That's a very... It's like the one the poster sort of compa- calls it the Turkish virgin suicides, which I think is a bit reductive to what it's actually about, but I think it's probably a good... A good easy self. Good touch point. But just yeah, going back to what you were saying about um, like the film nostalgia thing. Like I I had a. I had a script that was with a production company. I've written about this for for BuzzFeed, the website, <laughs> and and uh, this production company took it to a broadcaster in the UK, a nameless broadcaster, and the broadcaster said, um, "Well, we just we can't sell a script with an all Asian cast abroad. Like people in Russia just can't relate to." Um, all Asian cast and it just made me think that yeah what what they can relate to is period dramas because that's what we do that's what the UK does and that's what the UK does well we do that old weird brand yeah we we do the um, the times when the UK, when the Great Britain ruled the world and was and was great, and it, um, and but so also like how bizarre that they have to think about it in terms of global sales now yeah that's what but also like. Could they not sell it in India, which has millions upon millions of people living there? Like, but it's it's always weird to to fight because every now and then you you I get reminded that being Asian is a marketing trend and not a very lucrative one. God, that's bizarre. <laughs> which I'm I'm really sorry, people with my skin tone. We just don't make money. God, it's bizarre. So what? The, so that's, that's, <laughs> that's just, that's just me feeling yeah, shocked, yeah, like yeah, shocked and sad. Well, in case your like, final uh, point is, if you're anyone like me, don't even go into the arts. There's no work for us anymore. Apparently, <laughs> we're not marketable. Life's very sad. Look, I've taken up this year's slot. Can everyone just back off until 2017? <laughs> uh, and the next book you have is uh, Tanahasi Coates' uh, "Between the World and Me," um, and it, it it was a bestseller in America, and then it was just sort of printed like it was an academic book here which is a real shame because it's it's a really really special book it's um it's two essays it's it's kind of inspired by james baldwin's the fire next time which um is two letters that james baldwin writes to two relative um to young relatives and so um it starts tiny hearty coates is an incredible writer um write, writes quite prominently for the 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 atlantic wrote a big piece about the case for reparations um, is currently writing the Black Panther comics for Marvel, um, and when the the verdict that the officers who had killed Michael Brown came in, he and his fifteen year old son and wife were watching it on TV, and his son got really really upset and ran out of the room. And Tanahasi Coates um, went to comfort him, and he just found that he couldn't comfort him because he said he just felt that um, there was no way for him to sort of there was just nothing he could do and so he wrote this this book which is two essays and it's it's all about um having a black body in america and it's it's a, like it's it's written really really plainly um to a 15 year old but it, it's also the the descriptions of the bodies and the way like our bodies are, have all this violence and oppression inflicted on us it's, it's really it's really uncomfortable reading, but I think good uncomfortable reading because I think, you know, for me reading it, it's it's a, a lot of learning because it kind of, you know, it turn it takes you know events in Ferguson and you know what's been happening in America for years and years and turns it from like a cause that I sort of abstractly believe in into something that you know um, feels real and current and so visceral. 
It's fascinating when you do, there's a, a BFI released. Uh, it's James Baldwin. Uh, it's basically him just talking in London. Uh, mm. Have you seen it? No, I, no. I, I, th- I think it's on. A, as far as I remember, I might be wrong about this, but I think it's on a double bill with Babylon, which was like the kind of first proper, you know, kind of uh, Caribbean movie made in the UK about what it was like for that generation to come mm. over. And then, and it's got this half hour. It's not really a documentary. It's just James, just Baldwin talking. Is it on a and panel? He's so well, he's pretty. He's kind of being interviewed, but he's not really. It's basically just him speaking. I think and that's it was the on first YouTube. time that I'd seen him really speak. And you just go, "This is he's amazing. His eloquence. Yeah. His ability." A far next time I just found my copy that I read when I was like when I was quite young I was trying to you know, I was still trying to understand everything you know and uh, it's, yeah. it's fascinating so this, you would say this is kind of very this is now 21st I mean, he, century 2016 this is picking it up and probably actually in some ways well, depressing I think he's, 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 he's um, said that it's it's almost a companion piece to that and I think the, the, far, the far next time I read it too early like I, I tried to read it when I was uh, 17 and I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I. I. I got it, but I found it quite difficult to read. But. Uh, but I read it after reading this, and it really, really suddenly came alive for me. There's an amazing. There's. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of the book now. I've, I don't know where I've got it. I'll try and dig it out somewhere. But it's a collection of his movie essays. <coughs> James Gordon wrote some stuff about movies, and in the introduction, he talks about the fact that one day he was walking through the town. He was still a kid, and he, and he saw Joan Crawford. And he was like going, "Oh my God, it's Joan Crawford!" And then he goes, and then I suddenly realised, of course, it wasn't Joan Crawford because she isn't black. But it was like he kind of projected onto you know the things he was seeing on screen. The lack of representation meant that he was almost seeing people as people from his own community, and then they had this. Oh no, that's not no. John, John Crawford's definitely not black. It's uh, I'll, 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 another podcast. I'll, I'll remember what that name is. That looks fascinating. So that's that's between the world and me. Yeah, um, I'm a bit embarrassed that I've still not read it because for about two years I've been like, well, I've got to read that. But instead, I've been trying to read. Aunt this Julia one book. Screenwriter this for one three book months. by Maria Vagastrasa. That's the <laughs> one book you've been trying to read. <laughs> uh, I mean, there is a lot of Philip Larkin's erotica to get, <laughs> to get through. <laughs> yeah. You have to keep going back to Oxford. <laughs> get the get the bod card. Are you still researching that book long? Yes, yes, I am. Three more years. <laughs> She's caught Ooh. a petticoat on the brambles. <laughs> oh, Philip! <laughs> this lacrosse tournament has <laughs> to be very heated. So the next one in the in the pile. Yeah, this oh. is a great selection, by the way. Thanks. Um, this is uh, this is one of my favourite books of all time. But I only read it a couple of years ago. It's called. Can I ask you before we get to that? Then what was as you you when you started? Is there a book? Was there something? So we talked a bit about rap, but was there something that you you read that you can go? That was a moment where I went, "Wow, this is what you can do with a novel or a short story." Yeah, I've had it a couple of times. So, like, I pretty much exclusively read Spider-Man comics growing up, and um, and then and because the library was like the one place where my mum wouldn't um, sort of check what I was absorbing because it was a book. So, and books were books were fun. Whatever you wanted to read, and so I just read loads of Star Wars and Star Trek novelizations and like film tie-in novels. And then uh, I think the and I kept this up until like I was I can't remember when it was on but whenever the the televisation of the Buddha of Suburbia was coming on I remember that um, because it was set in South East London and yeah. I was like this is the most exciting thing that's ever happened <laughs> and I was really excited because it had an Asian dude in it and um, I sort of knew that I sort of knew that I wouldn't be able to um, 
watch it because my mum would like go well this is after nine o'clock it had it had lots of sex in it and um i'd seen the book in the library and i'd never and i i'd sort of picked it up because like the guy had the same name as the guy who used to drive bollywood tapes around all our all our houses in north northwest london in the 80s and the first line uh, my name is kareem amir and i'm an englishman born and bred and that 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 line just really, really troubled me for ages because like I just I just didn't get it. And then seeing the um, the advert on BBC Two that was coming, I was like, "Why well, I have to read it?" And I, I read it, and that was the moment I was like, "Yeah, I get it. I get I get this whole dual identity thing. I get why I'm different people with in different spaces, and I get um, what it's like to to be to be Asian with your family and to be Asian with your predominantly white school friends." And yeah, that was a moment where I started to sort of see myself in fiction. It was a really powerful moment for me. And then, um, and then I didn't really, I didn't really read like much stuff, much much stuff similar after that until like I I went to university in, in East London. I went to Queen Mary Westfield, but I was still living at home because I was a very sheltered child until I was twenty two years old. And studying the law, rapping away, rapping away, yeah, a sheltered rapper. And wait uh, for the Harrow and Wildstone <laughs> rap movement to yeah. really kick <laughs> off. And um, I, I picked up a book in in the Waterstones in Harrow called Bombay Talkie, um, because like Bombay Talkie, the Merchant Ivory film had been one of my mum's mum and dad's favourite films, and like it had a very very pink spine and it was called Bombay Talkie and I read it and like it's not the best book I've ever read but it was definitely a book that made me think I can write stuff I can write these characters I know these characters and so that like I I hold that book in like really high regard in in terms of like my my writing history because I think that was the book that made me think I want to try this I think something that you're just saying as well about the Spider-Man comics and stuff, which is, I think some parents get worried. Where, like my son, he loves lots of kind of comicy things, and sometimes they spin off Doctor Who things. And I can see that sometimes there are other people going, "Oh, you be careful because you know, lead them to the classics." But that's what I read as a kid. Now I read lots of big books, and uh, well, not big ones. Once it's over 300 pages, I haven't got the time. We accept that now, don't we? There's a, but it's that bit that the idea of I think when you're a kid, it doesn't matter. It isn't a bit, you know, as long as they're not, there's so many books that are now written, which basically are written by computer. There's certain kind of, and then there are lots of just fun books and there might be books about Doctor Who, there might be books about Spider-Man or The Simpsons or whatever. It doesn't mean that you go, and that's why my child could never read anything by Jane Austen. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just I, reading, it's sitting with a book. I think the, the canon is, the, the canon of classics is, is pretty bullshit. Oh, I, so ridiculous. And uh, reading comics uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Reading comics helped me to write dialogue because comic panels, you don't have a lot of space to fit in a lot of dialogue. So you get really good at snappy back and forth dialogue. Yeah. So it, and like reading that dialogue and like the, it helps you with the pacing of a conversation. And it helped you put things like pow in the yeah. middle of the page in big letters. Yeah. Do you know that's something I'd not read, I'd not thought about. There's a really <coughs> good exhibition, hopefully it's still on when this goes out, at the Cartoon Museum. If you've got time today while, while, while you're, you're in London, it's, it's uh, and it's uh, hold downstairs the Cartoon Museum and it's got bits of V Vendetta and uh, bits of this kind of Dave McKean stuff that he did with Neil Gaiman and uh, Jamie McKelvey's stuff there. Oh, and all manner of things there but i v vendetta the fact that they made a conscious decision 
uh, Dave Lloyd Alan Moore not to have any pows, kasplats, any sound effects mm. in their panels that they went, this is where this is kind of our little bit to an adult medium. And just very quickly, by the way, on long books, in terms of long books, I, I've got a copy of Jerusalem now, Alan Moore's book, and I've stubbed my toe, genuinely stubbed <laughs> my toe on it twice. It is enormous, and I can't take it with me anywhere because it's too heavy. How far so are you? I'm on chapter eight. And it is dense, but it is. It, you can see why. Have, have you got one of those it. reading plints that you rest it on? That's what I need. I need. I mean, I come from a with family little... of vicars. We must have one somewhere. Surely we were made. It was made to read something called Jerusalem. Say what Alan said about critics. Oh yeah, he basically he said that when someone said, "Why have you made a book so long?" and it really is, it's very big. He said, uh, "So only the strongest can critique me." <laughs> but it's it's a I think I don't know when it's out. I think it's out in the autumn, and it's a remarkable book. So just because we mentioned comics, but sorry, I shut up. Oh, I want to quickly mention there's an exhibition at the National Theatre, uh, National Theatre, National Gallery of George Shaw who I love, who's a painter, who I think we talked about him before. He did an exhibition called The Sly and Unseen Day, which has a really good companion book to it. If you're at all interested, I think you probably find it somewhere. And he paints, he grew up on this estate in Coventry and he used to paint, he paints beautifully realistic studies of places around this estate. And it's all about kind of the, celebrating the ordinary and being real about what your life really is and what's of significance truly around you to you in your life. George Shaw. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And he's got uh, an exhibition at the National Gallery, which I think is probably free, and it's until October. So I really recommend if you can get to London going to that. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Gallery Guide. <laughs> we do them all, don't we? So Sorry, we interrupted you when you were book. about to show your favourite book. I mean, it's only the best book I've ever read in my life. Not a big deal, mate. That's Not why we built up. We were like when Colonel Tom Parker used to put too many acts on before Elvis, so people went so mad they were smashing up the seats because he'd bring on another barbershop quartet. Uh. And where's Elvis? That's we have oh. been that barbershop quartet now, Nikesh. You are Elvis. One further destruction. Um, <laughs> there is a really good This American Life about this couple who were on the, the same bill as the Beatles on one of those Tonight shows. I can't remember which one. And they were this really sweet little double act, but they kind of died on their ass. And it was a really life defining moment for them. And I would really recommend looking that up because it's, they're lovely people and it's really interesting. Anyway, the book, please. My mother-in-law said she saw the Beatles in concert when they were supporting some other band when they came to Bristol and she thought, they were all right. Scathing review. Yeah. So, yeah, it's called Family Life. It's by Akil Sharma and it's a book that took him seven years to write. That's that's the snazzy proof copy. And it... It's about a family that undergoes a, quite a tragic event quite early on um, where the the narrator's brother dives into t- a too shallow swimming pool and ends up brain damaged. And um, it's about the f- how that sends a ripple across the entire family for years and years and years. And it's told in lo- bursts of short vignettes and... Um, so when because I've spoken to him about this book a lot because I'm, I'm obsessed with this book. Um, he it um, it was like a, a 700 page manuscript and it was just it was just his autobiography, and um, he then pared it down and then went for conciseness again and it's it's now like it's only like 220 pages or something but it's one of those books where every word matters and it's it's really really powerfully written. 
and um recent i asked him to 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 blurb one of my one of my books um and he i, I probably shouldn't say this publicly but I, I will and uh, he said I don't don't usually blurb books but um, I'll read I'll read 10, ten pages and if I like it I'll, I'll finish it and I'll, I'll give you a, a blurb for your, for your book and I was like okay cool I'll take it and he said I've read 10 pages it was charming uh, but I won't be blurbing it and I was like but you read 10 pages of my work and I was I was I was actually really really chuffed that like he'd actually bothered to to read it because he because you know writers of his level get asked asked to read stuff all the time and also it's nice that he was like i liked it yeah yeah um but just, still that's just, too much to bear yeah, I'm, just, I'm amazed that you put yourself out there like that because it's, oh, it's that's cool. a lot to deal it's, with I it's think. it is it is horrible asking people for for blurbs for things um because you you kind of think um Robin's I, having to leave because he's going to Leeds. I was gonna, I was gonna do it all quietly. Are we gonna cut so that out? Cut that out, please. Oh my God! Trent. He actually shut his face. He never shut oh, his face. Robin. Thank you so much. So I'm, 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 yeah. now the old man's left the room. Let's talk real books. Right, yeah. Why don't you talk um, about? Uh, yeah, your this early is rap experiences. So what was already. your first? Yeah, experience of rap. Well, um, it's gonna be something quite embarrassing, isn't it? Well, no, it might even be Public Enemy because when I was fourteen, I had a friend called um, Chuck called Chuck and he never told me what he did and then one day his surname was D delish oh that was terrible um but yeah that book is is in incredible it won it won it won a bunch of prizes um I was ugh. Ooh. The conversation is ground to a halt oh, yeah. now that Robin is. What do you think, room. Robin? I think I'm very angry. <laughs> I'm, oh, Josh, I'm I don't know what's going on in here, but I'm not leaving you in charge in future. I'm sorry. I'm deliberately going to give you biscuits with more gluten in than normal. You damn it, I won't eat See you him. tomorrow. See you later. Tomorrow? I'm not seeing him tomorrow. Oh, he's coming to my gig. Um, so this is a great recommendation. What else have you brought? So, um, so I brought uh, "Citizen," an American lyric by Claudia Rankin. Like, I used like when I was sort of when I, when I was doing the rap stuff, I was also doing lots of spoken word things, mm. and I always found that I like I never liked reading poetry that much. I f- found it <laughs> really, yeah. I found it quite hard. To, like, it's not something you could. I, I I found I've had to teach myself how to read poetry, and I don't. I just don't think you can binge read it in like one sitting yeah i quite like the fact that with poetry i do find myself like i dip in and i dive right in deep yeah. and then i come out again like i love to sit with the book of poems and go read a couple you know read one yeah sit stop think about it i uh, quite enjoy the fact that it's not like well that's the thing with poetry and short stories you really have to slow down and i'm a quick yeah. i'm a quick reader so um oh like, god finally there's a negative to your reading yeah so like so i i've been but i've been reading a lot of poetry recently because i read this book uh citizen by claudia rankin um because it's it really plays with the form of what um a poetry book is and it's part poetry part essay part memoir and it's all about wow. it's all about micro and macro aggressions in in america i mean that and the tana hasi coats are both pretty much about um being black in america today and they're both just electrifying books like that that one it <clears throat> the way the way formatically like it it plays with what a poem should look like i think is really interesting and um yeah it's it so i'm going to talk about what this book looks like but it's got 
a lot of illustration. It's got prose. It's got poetry. It's got a lot of space in it as well, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, there's, that's something I learned recently when I was um, when I was editing a book, and someone said that like because um, I love like with my with dialogue, I'll often have like someone will say something, and then like as part of an action that just sort of carries on for like two or three more sentences and someone said that like readers need white space and so you kind of need to separate all the lines of dialogue onto yeah. different onto different lines because that like the more dense a piece of a block of prose looks the harder the reader can sit with it and you, and then you read that and there's so much again white space on the page and there, there's a brilliant brilliant essay in there about uh, Serena Williams and how Serena Williams <clears throat> is the obviously the best tennis player who who ever lived but yeah. like the the media has sort of tried to paint her as the angry black woman and um and yeah it's just an astonishing bit of writing oh well i want to talk to you about the collection of essays that you've put together yeah um i also want again to recommend crispin best has written this faber new poets thing and it's so great have you read it no no i haven't read the new he's in the new set isn't yeah he? i think it's really funny and interesting and unusual so, but um, you've just put together this collection of essays yes. uh, called The Good Immigrant. Yes. Um, tell people a bit about that. Yeah. So um, I wanted to put I wanted to um, document like having read uh, Citizen and Between the World and Me, I thought it, I really wanted to document what it meant to be a person of colour in the UK at the moment, yeah. you know, with you know or the rise in the like really really sharp rise in islamophobia the um what's happening with the refugee crisis um uh with like the constant conversation around diversity in the arts um and so i and kind of going back to what i was saying earlier about like being told that your skin tone is a marketing trend and not a lucrative one i wanted to prove that these readers are out there so um and I'd met the guys who run Unbound at um, a talk that I was doing up in Newcastle um, for New Writing North, and they they really like sold me on the idea of like crowd crowdfunding is a really good way to make use of your audience. Yeah. And and I thought, well, if that's quite interesting because I can kind of show that this audience exists by getting them to crowdfund fund this book. So um, I picked 20 writers who I really rate so we've got Moose Rock Wonga, Sabrina Mafu, Selena Godden, Shimen Suleiman um, Riz Ahmed um, uh, Bim Adewumi, uh Rennie Edo Lodge, people like that yeah. like, so it's like a mixture of um, a lot of those people are my <coughs> Twitter heroes yeah yeah, I just looked through who I follow on Twitter <laughs> sure, get you all along. and um, yeah so it's a mixture of like established writers up and coming writers and writers who've never been published before so like one of the commissions is for uh, a young writer called Varidso who I mentored through uh, the youth magazine I edit Rife magazine wow. and she she's just an incredible writer and I was like you need you need you need to have a book deal but you know we, I need to help you get some things published in in some places so what I a delight to be able to be like you need to be published I I'll, can help you with that yeah yeah I'll just do it um so yeah uh we uh, I mean at the time I was having this sort of big online conversation about diversity in publishing and having public spats with big name authors um okay. about 
how they think that it's not either. It's Who did not. Did you have pro- a spat with? Am I allowed to ask? Would you rather not say? Uh, well, we're, we're friends. We've made up since. It was it was Matt Haig. Um, oh, okay. And that's uh, so funny. Uh, in a podcast earlier today, um, somebody mentioned his book and was like, "Oh, that book's great." Yeah, the the reasons to be alive book is great. is is a really amazing book about depression. Um, but uh, I think I'd written an article about. Um, World Book Night and how um, you know there's this night this charity where you kind of give all these books away for free and oh, yeah it's, I know it yeah and it's it's supposed to like try and inspire the non-readers to read and like this year there were no writers of colour on the the list but it was being heralded as a really diverse list and I thought well actually you know there is this huge problem of writers uh, readers of colour not reading because they don't feel catered for yeah. and if a charity list like a list funded by a charity can't find any books to try and engage these readers then what hope is there yeah. and um and you know like i think it's the, what they the charity does is a really good thing but i think because matt was on the list you know he he thought i was you know well, well, and also like i'm criticizing a charity and that's not that's never a nice thing to to do like if it's hard for things like that because like i know i mean but i'm what, not trying to draw a comparison because i don't think it's the same but at the same time like with um, the comedy award with the, uh, you know, and it's brilliant and like it, it coming into my life has been only positive and I, you know, I'm really grateful to them for like, but at the same time, sometimes I just think it, you have to, you have to physically change it every single year. You have to make sure that it's more representative. Yeah. You can't just go, well, you know, we sent the people out and we did the well, thing. Uh, I, I just don't think, I don't. I think people have to like do these things aspirationally, not just do these things with yeah, what actively they actively and aspirationally. And and actually, what I was what I was doing and what I was quite clear that I was doing was using what had happened with World Book Night to to highlight a larger issue. And the, so the larger issue is that writers don't feel writers don't see themselves on um, bookshelves and in price lists and reviews so they don't write so agents don't get submissions so they can only submit what they get sent in to publishers so publishers can only publish it what all perpetuates itself yeah and then the prizes and the bookshops and the reviews they can only award and review and shelve the things that get published and and the so they blame the publishers the publishers blame the agents and the agents blame the writers and the writers blame and it's like a perfect it's a perfect loop-de-loop of blame yes because if when the <coughs> writers get blamed they don't like it's like that thing of like why aren't there any women blah, 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 over and over again and there are but the constant drip of that yeah. It's so dispiriting, exhausting, time-wasting that by the end you're like, oh, fine, I quit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I know so many people who've quit, um, people of colour have quit the publishing industry or like have quit, um, have just not bothered writing beyond like a really amazing short story or essay. Gosh. And I, and I, and I just thought we all just need to, we all just need to imagine we work in a car, in a factory that makes cars, and like we're we're all just taking responsibility for our bit of the assembly line, mm. rather than blaming the people on the other bit of the assembly yeah, line. Yeah, you're right. And yeah. and then so like that's why I put the essay book together because I was like the thing that I can do is I know like a bunch of really shit hot writers who need to be published. I will find a, a way for them to be published, and like and now for all the other things, you guys fix your bits and yes. I'll and I'll fix my bit, and I'm doing what I can. And so like- yeah, we we really. Um, we released the crowdfunding thing, and because of, like there was a big momentum about the diverse. I hate that word so much now, um, but that's a, another thing for another thing. Yeah. Um, th- th- we were about a third funded after six hours. When I was thinking, wow. I was thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll get, we'll get there. 
I know we'll get there. And then we jumped up another third, like within like the time it took me to press refresh on the keyboard. And it's because we'd caught the attentions of uh, JK Rowling and she had sort of seen this book and was like, this seems like a really good book. And so by the end of three days, we were 100% funded. Uh, and there is... Uh, but obviously, there's like... The the audience is dying for it. Yeah, exactly. Do you know exactly. what I mean? There's so much thirst for it. And I was like, this is... this Because it takes... For Unbound, the publisher that's putting it out, like for the type of book we're doing, you need like, say, 650 people to fund fund the initial run mm. so that's 650 people who wanted to read a book before a word of it had been written and it like i don't know what percentage of the potential readership like let's say they represent one percent of potential readers mm-hmm. that's a lot of readers mm-hmm. who want this book they're just the early adopters who want to get in on this thing and support this thing from the get-go yeah um and like it's still going like every day it every week it goes up another percent so i've basically said like if we get to 200 percent before the book comes out in september i'm going to organize a rave uh with a dose of drug and everyone who's pledged can come down and and party and eat doses with with us with with all the writers um because like what what um now that we're 100 percent funded and like the book the actual physical thing of the book can happen like the next 100 percent for me is really important because like now we can build ourselves a publicity budget so we can then travel to say libraries and schools mm-hmm. and bookshops in like far flung flung places that don't get writers like us coming to coming to there because they don't have the budget to yeah. be able to pay for our transport so if we can go well we've got the budget where can we come like we can do a roadshow with all these writers and we can like we can you know i was really inspired by your um, alternative reality talk. Oh, so I was like, well, because like you know, when we showed up in Trowbridge that time for that really chaotic gig, I was like, <laughs> actually, what we're doing is really important, and like showing up in these spaces and showing them that, you know, good stuff does want to come here, but like because of like how how like money and tours and all those kinds yeah. of things were, we don't necessarily get to come here, but like we're making a statement that we're going to find a way to come here, and that's kind of what I want to do. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Also, then it's just really like the spirit of. DIY in yeah. the kind of big successful sense of DIY you yeah know, like making things and then making things happen and doing it without having to compromise you know yeah I, I think when you come up in the DIY scene like you know when I was in like doing crap rap and like doing loads of like different shows in like lots of different spaces you end up meeting a lot of people who can make stuff and can make things happen yeah and like it really kind of it kind of gives you a sense of anything is possible yeah like and just sort of like having been i am your friend josie but (laughs) having like been made with you like it's like really inspired me to like try looking at books in different way and like how we can i can reach readers that i know are out there know that want this good stuff out to uh, how to get the stuff to them and i think it's really important as well now more than ever because i feel like there is absolutely no dearth of talent and of subcultures and of scenes in this country at the moment but i feel like things need to be reconfigured somehow people need to sort of work finding new networks finding new ways because i think old channels that used to give you some sort of unilateral publicity or unilateral sales or whatever you know just don't really exist in the same way well, it's, but it's, it's all still going on and it's more exciting than ever i think i think well i think like the internet has sh- showed us like the importance of like tribes and like how you can't just have one blanket marketing campaign to let every single person know that a thing exists you've got yeah. to go to these 
different communities and find ways to talk to them and engage with them and you know that's how that's how we can get stuff out there and also i think it's like more exciting for the writers and performers to be going to a village hall in orkney or you know like a a library in the middle of nowhere like you want your experience as a performer to be interesting and varied and unusual as well so it's kind of great and like the the most important thing out of all of this is these writers just want to write they don't want to have to like like um be a cipher for an an issue or just sort of have to be a spokesperson like you like you you just want to do comedy you don't have want to have to always like represent all of your people but because you because you kind of have but you have to so and when people literally will say you know i i don't like women comedians so you better prove me right you know like like when people literally treat you as if because they didn't like you that must mean that anyone who's like you there we go. <laughs> or everyone is like you who looks like you or is I'm, a woman or whatever. And, the, yeah. Those are the types of people who won't eat lasagnas because they had a bad lasagna once and they're like, all oh, lasagna is bad. Yes, very reductive. <laughs> I, we've only got a couple of minutes, so I see you've got one more bit. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so I've, I found this book in a, an airport in Bombay. I really I really needed some space from my parents. Uh, not my parents, my dad and my sister after a really stressful trip to India. And uh, well, I was coming back and it had a line in a panther on the cover and it's called Aerograms. It's by Tanya, Tanya James. And it's one of my favourite short story collections I've oh, ever wow. read. And the first short story, I really want to make it into a film because it's called Lion and Panther in London. It's about, um, it's based on a true story of these two strong arm wrestlers from India who were, who were called like, who were deemed the strongest men in the world okay. in like Edwardian like in Edwardian times, uh, Gama the Great, who's on a lot of stamps and matchboxes, but they came over to London and they they basically took on the entire uh, Great Britain wrestling team. And then the, did and, they win? Yeah, and it was yes. like if you if you could if you could pin Gama the Great, then you'd win uh, money, and no one could. And like the and so the short story is about how their success, um, like their success started to sort of worry the government that it might have like a send, send message messages back oh, to the colonies. Empire. Yeah. Um, and it's a really, really amazing short story. I, I desperately want to make it into a film, but um, so yeah, this is just my cheeky way of going, Hey, producers <laughs> guys, I've recently started getting really into going to watch live wrestling. And <laughs> I'll tell you for free, if you can get some wrestling in there, that'll be your winner. Nostalgic wrestling. <laughs> People are going to go for, I am, um, I was going to ask you about short stories that bollocks. Oh, have you read? This is uh, Light Years by James Salter. Yes. I was. I just went and found it again the other day because I've had a bit of a sad time of it and I remembered some bits in it that I really loved. And I've got a few bits I underlined. What a book. What a... Like, if I can recommend it to people, I may have done it already in this show and I'm sorry, but there's this one line that's, life is weather, full stop. Life is meals, full stop. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Have you ever read James Salter's Life is Meals book? Oh my God, no, I had no idea. Oh my God, Jason, you need to read this book. This is... Is it all about food? Um, so James and Kay Salter um, kept a food diary for a year. Oh, yes, please. And it is the most gorgeous book. Um, oh my God, I need to find out more about this man. And uh, yeah, I, I interviewed him once. It was, it was the you? most incredible thing. He so was... what's... When was he even born? I don't even know. He was like a pilot in, in World War II, I think. Oh my God. I can't bear how much I, I'm I don't know if I got that wrong. I'm, he was definitely a pirate in the pilot in the American pirate. He was definitely he was a, pi- a pilot <laughs> and a pirate. <laughs> yeah, he had to quit piloting because he got into pirating. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's an amazing novelist. Yeah, uh, but in, in, there's this bit in Light Years, and this is really irrelevant to what we've been talking about. But 
it's sat with me since I read it. And I was talking to someone at a party about a year ago about it. And I went and found it. And I thought it was more complicated than it is. But basically he says, when you have love, you think it's really easy to find and that everyone has it. That's not true. Love is really difficult to find. Fucking hell. Like, so sparse. But it says everything. I, anyway, guys, you should read the book. It's really great. <laughs> There's um in in his last book that he published, which a couple of years ago, all that is there's a there's a brilliant line about um I can't I can't I'm paraphrasing it, but Sarah Churchwell the the writer made made a lot of fun of it where there's this line where he, he, go, he came like a sweating horse oh, and it was like uh, I think James Holden may have been Buster's best <laughs> at this point. This is still a great book. It um yeah. I, I really love his stuff. A Sport and a Pastime is amazing as well. It's one of the sexiest books ever written. Oh, God. Oh, oh, And um, do you like George Saunders? You do, don't you? Oh, yeah. I'm obsessed with George Saunders. Oh, yeah. You, you did an interview with him, didn't you? Yeah, oh, I've done a couple. I can't believe we're running out of time. What was it like? He told me the best thing about writing. Um, he said, like, take, take the sentence. Dave walked into the room and sat on the blue sofa. Okay. Do we need to have Dave walking into the room? Can he just already be in the room? Okay, Dave was in the room and sat on the blue sofa. Well, we don't need that he was in the room. Dave sat on the blue sofa. Well, does it matter that the sofa's blue? Dave sat on the sofa. Um, what, what if he's already sitting there? Okay, Dave was on the sofa. Well, do we even need this sentence? And that's how he does writing. Like, he starts with everything and he just whittles it down to um, its, like, its most critical points yeah. and I think that's a really good lesson like so many writers overwrite yes you don't and, and like it goes to, goes back to like when I first read that Orwell essay that's like stop fucking about yeah. <laughs> stop trying to be clever you know and I I think that is the kind of like and like Raymond Carver and all that I like people that are like willing to pare it right down so it's just like I was so sad full stop yeah you know? yeah and it's like you know when we were talking about the white spaces earlier like we fill in those white spaces yeah like we we imagine how the conversation is unfolding. Yeah. We see the words and we try and like put our own spin on it because like text. Nuance. Nuance. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's been really great to talk. I'm sad that we have to end. And um, Robin, as friends or as, as a podcast. <laughs> now we have done the podcast. We are no longer friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, please uh, check out and back. Uh, the good immigrant because a dosa party come up what happens quite a lot now is when I'm touring about I go and f- try and find a restaurant that will do dosas and then I just send photos of the menu <laughs> to you going look what that's happening to me um, also uh, your two novels that can be purchased anywhere readily available Coconut Unlimited and Meat Space yep. and Meat Space you're developing for all kinds of exciting things aren't you yeah um, working with uh John McQueen, who wrote Phone Shop, well, one of the, one of the writers on Phone Shop, we're trying to turn it into a, a, an Arrested Development style sitcom. Pretty cool. And uh, you've currently got uh, a new novel that's like just being sent out, isn't it? You've just finished your third novel, haven't you? Um, yeah, I'm just I'm working on an edit with my um, with my agent at the moment. She said, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to say this publicly because she'll probably be a little bit embarrassed. But um, she I, I there was a typo in a sentence that made her think that I was writing about wanking, but I was writing about someone pretending to smoke. <laughs> and um, she sent me a really long note about how 
pissed off she was at the way men write wanking scenes with women and it was hilarious it also contained some salient points if i ever decide to write a, a female wanking scene in the in the future useful she said only men only men ever refer to them as panties and not knickers oh, which i thought was really yeah which I thought was a good tip but um it was about someone pretending to smoke rather, rather than um doing stuff to doing stuff to themselves that's funny <laughs> Well, look forward to that, lads. <laughs> and um, yeah, we will be recording more of these hopefully soon. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And it's so funny not having Robin here. It's very weird. So that's the end. Goodbye. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks to everyone who has supported this podcast as well it keeps us making more and more and more so if you'd like to know more about cosmic genome or book shambles or both you just need to go cosmicgenome.com forward slash shambles thank you very much to these particular people for supporting us this month they are jane pond emily beach philippa mills lucian hoare lisa thrower lauren bevan lee house sarah mead Aoife lyons and deborah francis white thanks bye